I'm an egg, I'm an egg, I'm an egg, I'm an egg, I'm an egg. Hello, and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare, and every episode I shall be putting on a pair of surgical gloves and plunging my hands into the sloppy innards of a novice author's first page, tearing out the healthy organs and tossing them into a chest freezer so we can transplant them into our own stories later. Hopefully, in all the mess and carnage and death, we will learn something important about ourselves. I'd like to start with an apology, so I will. Sorry. But Tim... What could you, selfless purveyor of robust compositional principles, possibly have to apologise about? I hear you whisper seductively. Ah, my sweet summer child. I've spent a lot of time talking about writing as a trial, about how hard writing is, about how it's something to be endured. And it's true, a lot of the time I find writing really tough, but that's not the whole story. Some of you will know that my background is in performance poetry. Three times I've had a long-term relationship end less than 12 hours before I had to go on stage, which I know it's not that unusual to go through a breakup then have to go to work, but to do a gig where 60, maybe 100 strangers are waiting for you to entertain them or talk about your vulnerabilities when you're feeling like the world has ended, that's not easy. The funny thing was, I was glad of those times when I had to go on stage, when I had to speak to people and do my art for whatever it's worth. Those gigs, I was honest with those people. I'd tell them what had just happened. I'd make it part of the story. Some of you know that I've struggled with anxiety and depression for years now. And again, in the whole mess of life, of stress and panic attacks, of losing houses and jobs and friends and loves, of feeling defeated and small and grubby and meaningless, having to turn up and do some art with other human beings, that has been the surest and most constant companion in my life. And so the reason I want to apologise is, I'm sorry for forgetting to remind you that writing can be a friend. If you're suffering, you can give that suffering back to the writing and explore it. If your heart is broken, you can break the hearts of your characters and walk them through years, decades of mourning for the thing or the one that was lost. If you're angry, you can sow that anger and watch it grow into blazing wheat fields. If you're bored, you can write about a whale who can morph into a battle robot and has a series of torrid sexual encounters with other mammal-machine combos. You can honour your feelings. That's not to say that fiction doesn't need craft or effort or a certain methodical plodding determination. I'm keenly aware that a lot of what passes for writing advice these days is just a farrago of clubby, boosterish smarm. You don't need someone wafting incense about telling you how special writers are. You need practical tools and immediately applicable advice. So my advice is, however professional and disciplined you want to be, don't forget to come to writing asking something in return. What is your writing going to teach you today? What comfort or wisdom is it going to offer? How is it going to change you? Try engaging with it on that level and see whether your relationship to it changes. Right, as always, you can read a transcript of today's extract in the show notes on my website, timclairpert.co.uk. If you'd like to submit for a future show, wait till the end for details. I really need your submissions. Today's extract is titled Love Underground, and it was written by Andrew. It began when I realised writing the song could not fail to make her love me back. A week later, I knelt in wet leaves at the foot of my parents' garden, soil under my fingernails and a hard plastic treasure clamped between my teeth. Crimson flushed with embarrassment and October cold I dug. The earth below the surface was freezing and alive. I rubbed my fingers and shuddered. By the time I had scraped back the leaves and made a hole, I was panting. My lips numb and flecked with spittle where my teeth gritted round the edge of a cheap CDR. 
I spat it into the ground and steadied myself, thrust it into the hole and heaped earth back on top. I rocked to my feet, breathing heavily. I wiped a hand on my jeans and squirmed in the pocket for a Nokia mobile phone. Fifteen minutes until the train back to Edinburgh, to its old college and cobbles and long dead ghosts. I spat one last time to clear the taste of grey plastic, hefted my rucksack from the damp grass, and made for the gate, walking fast, gripping the phone one-handed. My fingers were brittle in the cold, but I found the button to compose a new message. In the garden. You'll see it. Come tonight. And here are my cuts. It began when I realised writing the song could not fail to make her love me back. No one could love a man with diction this sloppy. If his songwriting's like his prose, he's probably doing a 23-minute piece of improvised neo-prog. I am, of course, addressing the narrator, not you, Andrew. You're easy to love and deserving of it too. Writing good or bad prose can have no effect on that. Your first line has just charted slightly. Just a small squirt of faecal dampness. We can fix this. So look. This line has lots of things I like in an opening sentence. You introduce a protagonist, you introduce another character they have an implied romantic interest in, and you introduce a conflict, because we immediately discern that this is an unreliable narrator. Love me and the verb make are an inherently conflict-ridden pairing, right? This is an awful plan, which, from a tension point of view, is great. It began when. See... I do like the use of cataphoric reference in your opening line. I just dropped a bit of jargon from my English language A-level. Were you impressed? It's basically when you use a pronoun you haven't identified yet. So if you kick off with, he pulled down his pants and pulled the treasure map from a secret compartment, we're like, he? Who is this mysterious map trouserer? We're intrigued. So here, it carries a lot of weight. It in it began when, could be all sorts of things, but it's implicitly trouble, complications, a story. And yet, I'm complaining about this first line. What the hell's my deal? Well, it's just that every piece of fiction implicitly promises a story. You're just saying that the story began when, which we know because we're reading the first line of a story. The story is beginning. There's no need to tell us that you're starting in the right place. It's dead wood. Next up, I realised... Hmm. You're describing a moment of abstract mentation, not a great choice of action to kick things off given that it's internal, but more than that, you're writing in the first person. Given that information is limited by the narrator's knowledge, a lot of actions are implied by what information you give us. A classic example is, I saw a horse and carriage thunder past. I don't know why I gave that sentence a quaintly vintage feel, but just run with it. Instead of writing, I saw a horse and carriage thunder past, you could just write, a horse and carriage thundered past. In the act of describing it, the narrator is letting us know that they perceived it and by implication saw it. The same goes for thoughts. Instead of writing, it occurred to me Jeff was an idiot or Jeff was such an idiot, I thought. You can write, Jeff was such an idiot. If it's in the first person, we know that it's a thought. And the same applies when writing in third person limited with a partial stream of consciousness narrator. Instead of writing, she hadn't time to go to the florist today, she realised, you can just write, she hadn't time to go to the florists today. It's an implicit realisation or thought or whatever because it's couched in their point of view. So why does this matter? Well, to make sure your narrative isn't bogged down in loads of shitty cruft. Cutting this redundancy is the difference between hard-going, dull, discursive scenes and snappy, readable, engaging ones. But you have to keep your eye out for it. So what I'm saying is, Andrew, yeah, sure, the narrator realised a thing, but if you just describe the realisation, we'll understand it was a realisation. You don't need to ease us in with, I realised. Next bit. Writing the song could not fail to make. Could not fail to is a particularly ugly snarl of double negatives. Could not fail to, otherwise known as would. 
Now, I get what you're going for. Could not fail to seems more juicy because it contains the word fail. It flags up its own fallaciousness, but it does so in the same cartoonish way Dick dastardly assures Muttley that their plan cannot fail. It's also clumsy and abstract. In a first line, that's fatal. But one thing I want to praise, love me back, is much better than love me. That final word, back, has a deliciously nasty kick. So, applying all these suggestions renders the line as writing the song would make her love me back, which is okay as an opener. I mean, it's, it's not bad, it's less clunky, but it's still abstract. You haven't located it in a narrative present, and stripping away all the fluff just exposes that. Now, I did say we'd find a fix. Here's the fix. Cut this line. It's a bad way to start your story. A week later, I knelt in wet leaves at the foot of my parents' garden, soil under my fingernails and a hard plastic treasure clamped between my teeth. So let's assume this is the new first line. Right out of the gate, you can cut a week later since it's redundant. I knelt in wet leaves and soil under my fingernails are quite nice sensory details, if a little obvious. Wet leaves suggests a season, which is good. A hard plastic treasure is an objectively awful way to describe a CD. Please, please don't do this. It's not literary to give common objects obfuscatory new names. I realise the CD is valuable to the narrator because presumably it has the song on it, but that doesn't justify making up a stupid alias for it. Andrew, look, if you were sitting in a car and the driver asked you to reach into the glove compartment and pass them a hard plastic treasure... Would you immediately be like, oh, she must mean the Smashing Pumpkins album? No. No, you wouldn't. You would wrench the wheel from their grasp and swerve into the central reservation in the hope of maiming them out of their complacency. And you would be right to do so. At the foot of is an awkward little grammatical grot. You can get away with one of these per paragraph. It would be okay if you didn't have a bunch of other modifiers like a week later, in, under and between. Everything is fastidiously positioned in relation to everything else and the cumulative effect is wearying. Why is the CD clamped between the narrator's teeth? They're just about to bury it, right? Why not put it down? They can't be worried about getting it dirty or scratching it. Why would they hold it in an uncomfortable, impractical way? I suspect the answer is because it sounds more manic and arresting, which are not good reasons to abandon the plausibility of your fictional world. It's fine to make your character irrational, but don't make them illogical in a way that strains credulity. Crimson flushed with embarrassment and October cold I dug. How can the narrator see the colour of their own cheeks? This is a standard POV problem. It's fine to have them feel their cheeks prickle with heat, but unless they have a mirror, they can't see the visual effects of vasodilation. You don't need to tell us that the narrator is embarrassed, by the way. Give us context that lets us deduce this emotion. And October cold is too on the nose. You've given us fallen wet leaves. Why spoil that lovely, subtle cue by steaming in to explain? I dug is good, though. Salvaging healthy organs from these three sentences a workable first line might be kneeling in wet leaves at the foot of my parents garden I dug the earth below the surface was freezing and alive by freezing you don't actually mean freezing do you or do you mean very cold and what does the adjective alive add at least with freezing you're implying a sensation the soil is stingingly cold against their fingers alive is just a wanky poetic value judgment and Look, I throw these meaningless tags into my sentences all the time. The sky was cloudless and awake. The ocean was grey and pregnant. The cavern waited, dark and 
Bulgarian. It's bollocks. It sounds poetic and vaguely poignant, but it's bullshit masquerading as high art. And whenever I redraft, I'm on the hunt for each instance with a harpoon dipped in cobra venom. I rubbed my fingers and shuddered. I rubbed my fingers sounds wrong somehow. I rubbed my fingers together and shuddered is way too much. It suggests an Alsatian shitting a sock. Presumably the narrator is shivering because they're cold. By the time I had scraped back the leaves and made a hole, I was panting, my lips numb and flecked with spittle where my teeth gritted around the cheap CDR. How does the narrator know their lips are flecked with spittle if they're numb? They can't see them. And again, this is another great example of why holding the CD between their teeth is really stupid. Not in a way that reveals character, but one that damages the credibility of your story. The adjective cheap stands out as a particularly bad one here. It's a value judgment, not a concrete quality, and it's a completely irrelevant one. I spat it onto the ground and steadied myself, thrust it into the hole and heaped earth back on top. I rocked to my feet, breathing heavily. You might notice a monotonous rhythm building across these three chunks. I did action A, I did action B, I did action A, I did action B, I did action A, being all the while. Watch out for sections where you hit a run of he or she verbed. Try to break it up with some description of their surroundings. Now that might sound a little bit prescriptive and artless, but I'm afraid a lot of writing is. Asterisk. Good writing, that is. Why do they spit the CD onto the ground and not directly into the hole? Why do they thrust it into the hole? And why do they have to dig a hole in the first place? If you're in a flower bed, couldn't you just more or less post the disc directly into the loose soil? Maybe not. How deep are they burying this? Deep enough that no one can find it? Or is it a shallow grave? There's so much in this scene that doesn't hang together that I don't understand. And not in an intriguing enigma sense, just in an incoherent, ill-thought-out way. I wiped my hand on my jeans and squirmed in the pocket for a Nokia mobile phone. I squirmed in the pocket. This makes it sound like the narrator climbs bodily into their jeans and starts thrashing around. And why the pocket but a mobile phone? It makes it sound as if the pocket is deeply significant but the phone is one of several. And a Nokia mobile phone. I appreciate this is maybe a clue to when the piece is set, but nobody in real life phrases it like this except an awkward defence barrister or someone's nan. Are they going to go and take a drive in their Volkswagen automobile to buy a Big Mac hamburger sandwich and a bottle of Fanta sparkling fruit drink? 15 minutes until the train back to Edinburgh, to its old college and cobbles and long dead ghosts. Unless their parents live literally next door to the station, they are cutting this crazily short, like implausibly so, like it's making me anxious. Why not send the text once they're on the train? I do like the specificity here. Edinburgh, Old College, Cobbles, all those things felt real and brought the story into focus. Long dead ghosts is where the line wheezed down its thigh, sadly. We've discussed this before. Don't go concrete. Concrete. No! My fingers were brittle in the cold. Right. Andrew. Poppadoms are brittle. Meringue is brittle. Unless the narrator's fingers are literally crumbling as they try to type a message, this is the wrong word. Their fingers can be numb or sore or tender, but not brittle. So yeah, look, you've started with a moment that is emotive and full of tension for the narrator. Great, right? But the only problem is, for us, it's just weird. I have no idea what the stakes are. I can't pass this scene's internal logic. We're inside the narrator's head, but they don't give us any of the information we need to make sense of it. So it's just like watching someone play in the world final of a Magic the Gathering tournament if you've got no idea of the rules. It's just someone doing some gardening. 
Tension is not about withholding information. It's not about any of that. It's about giving us all the information we need to realise just how fucking dire the situation is. Don't hold back. Don't be scared of that. Don't be wankily coy. If the narrator is going to do their job, they'll need to open up to us. And that's it. If you want to submit for a future podcast, please go to my website, timclairpoet.co.uk. You'll see a link for our submission guidelines in the show notes. Without your submissions, I can't do the show. So please, without wanting to sound rather desperate, don't hold back. Moreover, you should subscribe to the show on SoundCloud or iTunes. I know whenever I hear a podcaster say that, I ignore it. By all means, do so as well. But given that my uploading schedule is erratic, I aim for Friday mornings. If you subscribe, you can be sure to never miss an episode. And it'll be like receiving a little weekly gift. Doesn't that sound nice? I have a novel out called The Honours. That's how to support the show. Buy it. Read it. Think about the things I talk about on the show. See how well I've applied them. I'm working on a sequel and every sale is a huge, lovely boost that allows me to continue doing the one thing I've always known I had to do, which is right. Until next time, may you be well, may you be happy, may you find peace. <laughs>